All the time when I'm talking to, to young men in our church, I say to them, be a good brother to your younger siblings. You won't know what a gift it is to have a brother who's going to be by your side for a lifetime. You won't know what it is until you have it at 50 years old. And, and I think sometimes when they see my brother and me and our friendship and the fruits of it, they get a sense of it. But really and truly, I, I don't know how I could have survived as a pastor if I had not had a brother who was a pastor and who encouraged me. Now, most of you probably don't have brothers who are pastors. David Carell's about the only guy here who I know is in the similar. David Baker, yeah, David and David. All three Davids. And, uh, and it's a, a privilege and a joy, and it's such encouragement, but it makes it all the more important that that those of, those of you who don't have a brother who is a pastor develop really good friendships with someone who's a pastor and someone who has courage. Without that, you will not have courage. You, you will not do what you need to do. I'm going to talk a little bit later about this, just briefly quoting from this book that's just new. I don't know if any of you have seen it or heard of it, Calvin's Company of Pastors. And... Uh, it's, it's fascinating to see how important the group of pastors that worked in Geneva was to the, the Reformation, the work that went on there, the fellowship they had and how they made that fellowship the center of their lives. And it was really the center of their lives. And it, I think he makes, he makes the case that it's really that group, not Calvin alone, but the group that caused the, what happened in Geneva to, to, to last, to be done with power. I want to, so being here this evening, I want to thank in particular two men who have been encouragements to pastors whom I love. And one is David Wolf for his kindness in, in, and faithfulness to me uh, by your love for Andrew. It's been wonderful to hear about your support of Andrew, David. We love Andrew, and we believe in Andrew. And to have a man of your stature standing with him and supporting him in, in, through these times that have been hard has been such a joy to us, such an encouragement to us. And we honor and thank God, for, we honor you, we thank God for you, for what you've done there for Andrew. We, I remember loving you when we first met you, when you came up to interview Andrew at our church, and boy, you have been a gift to us. And then Mike Bowles, who has encouraged every pastor who knows him and has been a stalwart even to the point of building my brother's house for him. <laughs> sort of a glutton for punishment. <laughs> Mike, we, we owe you everything, and your faithfulness has been the joy of our life. Mike, build our church for us. And it's a beautiful church. What? Our church house, let me adopt the terminology that you guys use and that we've said is probably good. He built our church house for us, and it's a beautiful one as this one. I think actually ours is a little better looking, but, <laughs> but we don't have a welcome screen as you come in, and we'll have to think about it. We don't have a wall that you can walk into like that. I'd like to ask you to turn in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning in verse 17 and then continuing on through 25, and I am going to, to jump 
further back in 1 Corinthians, I really want to think about more that's said in Corinthians than just this. I think that the theme that begins here is woven through Corinthians, and so I'm going to jump further on in the book later on. But begin here. 1 Corinthians 1, 17, this is the word of God. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you'll, by your Holy Spirit, enable us to profit from your word. May we not be above its folly, its foolishness in the eyes of the world. May we be colored by it. And may you give us the power of the cross as we, as we look at your word and as we preach it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There are two things that are stated in our passage this evening. And I'm really going to begin with verse 17 and call that our passage because I think what comes afterwards elaborates on 17, but the, the message of 17 is... The, is the crux of the thing. It's the nub of the matter. And in that verse, Paul says two things. Christ did not send me to baptize. It's a, it's a negative and then a positive. But to preach the gospel. And then there is a clarification. There is an, of, of how that preaching goes on. Not in cleverness of speech. So that the, Christ, the cross of Christ would not be made void. We find here then in, in this verse, and it's, it's played out through the rest of this passage and also through the rest of the book, two things. One is a pastoral priority, and second, there is a, a style or a manner that's taught as well of preaching. Now, as we, as we approach this passage, I am anticipating the, the native sort of natural objections that arise in our minds when we hear Paul say something like what he says in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. I've found in my life that the real challenges to my belief in scripture and my my confidence in the, in the authority of Scripture are not those passages that are generally def defended by those who, who teach and practice the, the apologetics of inerrancy, but instead um, the, the passages that I find troubling are ones that, that hit me either in practice or in the theology that I have come to a settled position on 
as, as being antithetical or, or, or opposed to it. So I, I have no problem with the order of events in the Passion Week. I'm sure there's a way to describe it. I'm sure there's an explanation for it. I don't need to have anyone provide me with an ordering that makes sense. I'm, I, I just am not bothered by it. Nor do I need answers in Genesis to defend the flood or the seven-day creation, 24-hour day. I don't need that. In fact, I, I find that those answers are probably less helpful than just simply saying the Word of God says it, and I'm not going to worry about it. There are often things that appear to us to be, to be contradictions that just aren't. You know, it's, it's part of the frailty of the human understanding that, that we have perspectives even in our, in our reception, not just in our, in our statement of things, but there's perception, the perceptive error both in the delivery and in the reception. And so I'm not concerned about those things. But where I do find myself challenged are places, are places where people who are willing to provide logical or even scientific answers and explanations don't concentrate. Because there's no real logical answer or explanation needed. The real problem is simply the bald statement of Scripture. This is one of the most difficult books in the Bible for me. There are a number of chapters. If I could say they were chapters of straw, as Luther calls the book of James an epistle, I would say that certain of the chapters... (laughs) First Corinthians, I don't say it, and I don't think Luther should have said it. But in my mind, I may approach it that way, and I wonder if I'm not alone. I, I suspect I'm not alone in this. I find chapters 7 and 11, chapters 12 and 13 and 14, all of them difficult. You, you may wonder why 13. Well, 11, because of the things it has to say about hair. <laughs> I go, whoa. And it's not the head coverings, that's plain and simple. I, I don't have any problem with head coverings. I, I've told my wife I want her to wear it, the Bible says it. You know, it's that simple. Um, more so the statement that nature itself teaches that long hair in a man is a dishonor to him and that the woman's long hair is her glory, and especially the statement that follows that, Where Paul writes, the Holy Spirit says, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice nor have the churches of God. And of course, I want to say, well, we, the churches of God, you know, this is time limited, this is specific, this is not, can it apply to today? Does nature teach us this today? Is there a natural revelation about these things? Is there a natural law that teaches it? And I'm like, oh, man, (laughs) Let's, let's move on to chapter 12. But then you get to chapter 12, and you have its teaching on spiritual gifts. And if you've looked at that recently, you go, oh, man. Because, as a dear friend of mine said, it doesn't just talk about miracles. It talks about teaching as spiritual gifts and how you plumb that line, you know, how you separate that divide. It really takes some sophisticated hermeneutics. And, uh, and then you move on to chapter 13, and you think, what could you have against the chapter on love? Well, as a child of the Reformation, as someone who grew up in the Reformed faith with a father who said that there's no, no doctrine more central than justification by faith. Right? It's one doctrine that my father would die for, to hear that uh, these things abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. <laughs> Wait a second. Maybe in the life to come, but here? Is it really true that love is more important than faith? 
You know, and, and I think for many of us, it's sort of a slap in the face to our reformed understandings. Verse, chapter 14 is difficult because of gifts again, especially the command that ends it, not the forbid speaking in tongues, right? And, uh, but I, the, 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 I started by saying chapter 7. And by every measure, the chapter I think that causes me to say is the Bible, is it really inspired, is, is 1 Corinthians 7. And I can't get over chapter 7 where Paul writes, but of course we can't say that Paul writes. We must say that the Holy Spirit speaks through Paul. As Paul says, I wish all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them to remain if they remain even as I. But if they don't have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. Now, I have heard sermons on it is better to marry than to burn. Right? But I've only heard explanations, which sort of are, di- are diversions rather than, than explanations of where Paul says, I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it's good for them if they remain even as I. I've never heard it preached on, have you? <laughs> I've heard sermon after sermon on it. It's better to marry than to burn. But the Holy Spirit says it's better to remain unmarried if you have the self-control. And, uh, and I come from that, I, come th- I read that and I go, yo. So these are the areas where I find my confidence in Scripture attacked. These places where the word runs contrary to my most basic assumptions and my desires, where actually the Scripture is messing with my practice or my theology. And I was struck, I was reading a, a good friend who was a, a student of Howie Hendricks, those of you, how many of you have heard of Howie Hendricks from Dallas Theological Seminary? You may know he died just recently. And uh, so there are retrospectives being written about his life. I didn't know this, but he's famed for saying, if you don't have a wife, get one. And he's famous for it. I mean, they, they put that as a, a poll quote in this Dallas Theological Seminary article on their illustrious now-departed professor. If you don't have a wife, get one. But of course, that really runs contrary to Paul, doesn't it? You understand what I'm saying? I mean, you you can't just, if you're going to be teaching the word of God, you can't just say, if you don't have a wife, get one. If you don't have a wife, get one. If you don't have a wife, get one. The Bible doesn't say that. It does say that a wife is a gift from God. It says many good things about marriage. But it never says, if you don't have a wife, get one. It actually says, if you don't have a wife, don't get one unless you're burning I was struck as I read this to realize that Howie Hendricks also was the professor there who was the professor there who made the first black students at the campus feel most welcome. He, Tony Evans said that Howie Hendricks was the professor who went out of his way to welcome him, for which I'm, you know, I honor the guy. But the article went on to say that when Dallas admitted women, he also was the first one to welcome them as, 
when they came. The passage that we have before us this evening is one where scripture messes with many of our theologies and so it is a challenge on multiple levels. It's a challenge first because it's inspired written, the very word of God. It's a challenge also in what it reflects of Paul's apostolic call. Beginning with inspiration, Paul writes not as Paul the man, nor as Paul, the older guy who should be listened to carefully at certain points and then with a certain discernment and judgment that comes with spiritual depth discarded because he's an old coot at certain points as well, uh, not listened to but sort of ignored, piously ignored. He's writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's the inspired author of Scripture and he says by the Holy Ghost. It's not just what he practiced, I'll come to that. But he says that God did not send him to Corinth to baptize. He actually prefaces this statement by a paragraph in which he writes that he didn't baptize any of the Corinthians, save Crispus and Gaius. And yes, he adds, now that I'm on, he's sort of remembering as he's writing, I recall also I baptized the household of Stephanus, but besides those, he says, I don't remember any others that I baptized. He was there 18 months. He built that church from the foundation up. This was not a church of Christians. This was not people who came from other churches. These were people who were unbaptized. These were people who had not received the baptism, the baptism of Christ. And he says, I didn't baptize any of you. Well, I did a couple of Christmas, Gaius, and I think the household of Stephanus. But beyond that, I didn't do it, and I'm glad I didn't do it, he says. And from this simple statement of fact, he says that he was not sent to baptize but to preach the gospel. And this is inspired. And the Holy Spirit wants us to know that Paul did not come to baptize, but that he did come to preach. This is not Paul waxing Pauline. This is the Holy Spirit revealing the word of God, inspiring Paul to write this. And so God is speaking through Paul. It's inspired. God wants us to know that there is a priority between word and sacrament. And it may not be the priority that we want to hear. The Bible says very clearly that baptism is a lesser priority than preaching. Uh, Not only is there the fact of it that's baldly stated here, there's also the remarkable fact of it that Paul's apostolic call was not to baptize, but to preach. Now, it's not a rejection of baptism. Paul, after all, says, yeah, I did baptize a few of you. It is a statement of relative importance, and it's a call to us in our ministry to discriminate. Many of the most conservative pastors I know in the Reformed world like to say that they practice what they call a normal means of grace ministry which they define as a ministry of word and sacrament. And sometimes you get the feeling from them that it might be a ministry of sacrament and word. They're safeguarding the crown jewels when they come to the sacraments and that the word is almost secondary to it. But of course, the Pauline call and his subsequent practice, as well as what he teaches us through Scripture, isn't one which holds up the word and the sacraments equally, is it? 
And lest you think I'm going too far, let me read to you Calvin's views on this passage. He says, did not send me to baptize. Now I'm reading Calvin. He anticipates an objection that might perhaps be brought against him. That he had not discharged his duty inasmuch as Christ commands his apostles to baptize as well as teach. Accordingly, he replies that this was not the principal department of his office, for the duty of teaching had been principally enjoined upon him as that to which he should apply himself. For when Christ says to the apostles, in Matthew 28 and Mark 16, go, preach, and baptize, he connects baptism with teaching simply as, this is Calvin, simply as an addition or appendage, so that teaching always holds first place. Two things, however, must be noticed here. First is that the apostle does not here absolutely deny that he had a command to baptize, for this is applicable to all the apostles going baptize. And he would have acted rashly in baptizing even one had he not been furnished with authority. It simply points out what was the chief thing in his calling. The second thing is that he does not by any means detract here as something from the dignity or utility of the sacrament, all of which we'd agree with. But listen to Calvin. Listen to what he says. He says that he connects baptism with teaching simply as an addition or appendage so that teaching always holds first place. In other words, the sacrament is always subordinate to the word. This is always the truth about scriptural ministry. And it is always the tendency of pastors who are not convinced of the power of the word to celebrate the mystical powers of their office, especially as they are, as they are adduced, as they are enumerated in the sacraments, their sacerdotal office over against the word. Sometimes going so far even as to, add, to make up new sacraments, new magical offices to add to, to those that are ordained in Scripture, as the Roman Catholic Church has done. And many of our own churches do the same thing. They've added the sacrament of, dare I say it, classical music. They've added the sacrament of, of art. They've added the sacrament of, a, of an explicitly formulated, almost ex opere operato, if you know what I mean. It's, it, the power is in the actual way of doing it, not in what's done. Uh, view of worship, of liturgy. And worse, I mean, now we have the sacraments of the, of, the, of the band with its lights. I mean, I, I, I think in many churches, lighting has become part of the sacramentology. You know, you can't have worship without the power of the lighting. And, and, and our churches have become, as we were talking about recently on the blog, there was this great comment uh, strain on Bailey blog recently about how darkness pervades the houses of, of worship of the idols. How they don't let in light. You know, and I think it's the truth, you know. You, you go to any, any false religion and its houses of worship are dark. They, they do not allow light in. They, they, evil men love darkness. God is a God of light and it, it's actually lived out in the way that they don't let windows. Now, they may have windows. It's never into the house of worship itself. But think of how many of our churches have become places that are totally manipulated in their lighting and have become movie theaters. We have the sacrament of the theater. It's 
It's become part of our, of our way of worship, just like the, the Roman Catholic Church had its sacraments that were added to the, those specified in Scripture. Ours are different, but they're similar. Nate, uh, this past week, my son Nate, who's our, leading our, our youth group, we were on a, a, a trip, on a retreat with the youth, and I went on it. David Abbasara, David did a fantastic job of preaching on that retreat. And uh, thank you, David, for your wonderful job. Heard more and more about how people were convicted by your preaching. But at, at one point during the weekend, early on, the, the leader of this other group that was up at the camp with us, a big group, about 250 people, and we had our 60, uh, came up to Nate. Nate, I may, may be getting this wrong, but I was just told this this morning by Jonathan. Came up to Nate and said, hey, you know, I hear you're the leader of this group. You know we're going to do some midnight worship tonight. Why don't you come up? And he said, it's going to be, they say, wickedly awesome worship. It's going to be wicked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, I think that, it, that he, was, he was more honest than he thought. I mean, that, and, and the reason is that their, their worship was, was a whole retinue of, of false sacraments. The droning organ during the prayer, the Lord lights, the fog machine, and all of that was part of this midnight worship, am I right? You know? Now you may say these are false gods, I'm not sure. I'm not sure they're not false sacraments, and, and ultimately they lead to a false god. But I think the sacraments are, are in view. Now they're not true sacraments, but they are what they value, and the way they think you approach God and find the grace of God. So, what do we make of this statement of, of Paul's? Well, let me say to you that Calvin is, is with Paul here in a way that many of us may not be. Because Calvin had to live out the anti-sacerdotal. You know what I mean by sacerdotal? It's the idea that the, that the, the sacraments, the, the application of the sacraments leads to salvation. It's, it's the power of the priest. Sacramentalism is the power of the sacrament. Sacerdotal is sort of a little more sophisticated way of speaking because it actually vests the power in the priest himself, all right? And, that's what it, and so uh, Calvin had to live out the anti-sacerdotal, anti-sacramental view that, was expressed, that is expressed here in Corinthians by Paul. The recent assessments of practices in the Church of Geneva during the time of Calvin that have been published as a result of people just in the last few decades looking into the, the records of the church in Geneva. It's been very helpful. I don't know if any of you have read Robert Kingdon's Adultery and Divorce in Calvin's Geneva. Man, I tell you, that's been a helpful book for me as I've worked through issues in my church. Wonderful. The Consistory Records of Geneva, which Tim urged me to get, and I've read some of them, not all of them, absolutely helpful. Um, another Kingdom book, I can't remember what it is, it's family life, basically. Courtship, date, marriage, and family life in Calvin's Geneva, and I've just ordered that today. But um, a new book in this genre that I mentioned earlier is this one, Calvin's Company of Pastors, written by Scott Minetch, who's a professor at Trinity, published by Oxford. Wait a little bit to get it because it's 70 bucks right now, but uh, even on Amazon. It's a helpful book, 
And it's one of these that continues this examination of the pastoral ministry in the time of Calvin in Geneva. He writes that in the Reformation, and now I'm quoting this man, Protestant reformers dismantled the traditional conception of the Catholic priesthood and erected in its place a radically new construction of pastoral office and ministry that transformed parish life within the parishes. Protestantism shattered the ritualistic universe of medieval Catholicism and desacralized the clerical office. The powers and privileges of the, the Catholic clergy were truncated. Saints' days were replaced by the Lord's Day. The Latin Mass was replaced by vernacular sermons. The celibate priest was replaced by the married pastor. Evangelical doctrines such as justification by faith alone the supreme authority of scripture and the priesthood of all believers elicited new understandings of Christian ministry. Martin Luther's message that sinners were righteous before God through faith in Christ alone not only undermined the Catholic penitential system, but also cut at the root of the medieval priest's sacral role as a dispenser of salvific grace through the sacraments of the church. You catch that? These teachings undermine not only the penitential system, all right, the mass, the indulgences, but also cut at the root of the medieval priest's sacral or sacral role as a dispenser of salvific grace through the sacraments of the church. The Protestant reformers elevated instead the biblical office of the Christian minister or pastor whose primary responsibility was to preach the word of God and supervise the behavior of the spiritual community. Whoever does not preach the word, Luther insisted, is no priest at all. Because the sacrament of ordination can be nothing else than a certain rite by which the church chooses its preachers. He doesn't connect it with the sacraments. He connects it with preaching. I'm sure at some points, Luther being Luther, he connects it in the opposite way as well. But here he's making it. <laughs> Rather astoundingly, Manetch, the author of this book, quotes a scholar, a recent scholar named Louis Binns, and this is what he says, whose careful study, Louis Binns, careful study of the visitation reports of the diocese of Geneva, that is, prior to the Reformation, the diocese, that is, the Catholic diocese of Geneva from, 17, or, uh, from 1338 to 1450 found not a single instance of a priest or curate preaching in his own parish. Does that boggle your minds? Instead, Geneva's townspeople had the opportunity to attend sermons by mendicant preachers, begging preachers, in other words, guys who said that our, our vow is poverty. We go from place to place, you know. We love the Lord so much, we just go place to their itinerant preachers. And this is coming to the second point of my sermon. But on alternative Sundays at the Franciscan and Dominican monasteries in the city, these sermons were supplemented at Advent and Lent by longer sermon series preached by locals or by more famous mendicant preachers from Italy, Spain, or France. People came from far and wide, for example, to hear the Advent sermons of the famous Spanish-Dominican preacher Vincent Ferrier in 1403. A generation later, the, the Italian Benedictine preacher Baptiste of Mantua preached to overflow crowds in the city. 
By the middle decades of the 15th century, special preacherships like these were funded by public monies. Like the artist series or the endowed lectureships of our public universities. And so we find that the reformers were like Paul in two ways. First, they de-emphasized the sacraments over against the word. And I'm stating it baldly. They de-emphasized the sacraments and emphasized the word. Second, however, was the style and manner of their preaching. It was in the vernacular. It was simple. It was by local pastors. It was every day of the week. It was practical. It focused on reforming lives. It was hard and challenging. It was not showy. It was authoritative. And so we come to the second part of this verse, and then I'm going to jump off from there. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the, Christ of, the cross of Christ would be made void. Not in cleverness of speech. Not with the kind of preaching that draws crowds because this famous preacher is coming to town and is going to preach and everyone will come because he's famous. Not the kind of preaching that's going on in our churches today where one guy who's famous and who's known as a preacher has locations all over the country where he's listened to by video. Local men who knew their congregation preaching every day of the week to their congregation. Which brings us to the character of the preaching that is enjoined here by the Spirit. And I'd like to move on now, further on in 1 Corinthians, and I think this theme is carried throughout the book, because Paul's, Paul is under attack throughout 1 and 2 Corinthians, and the nature of his preaching is one of the things they attack. You know, in, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he has to defend, say, you know, I'm, I know I'm not real impressive. I know that I, I sound more impressive when I'm writing than when I'm with you in person. They're attacking his preaching. They're saying, that guy doesn't know how to preach a Paulus, man. Give me a Paulus any day. He's got the silver tongue. He's got the, the name and the education that I like. You know, he's, I want Apollos. I don't want Paul. So, 1 Corinthians 12. Just as Scripture prioritizes between sacrament and word, giving precedence to the word, so Scripture also prioritizes and calls on us to discriminate between types of spiritual gifts that involve words. Right? Now, there are many spiritual gifts that involve words, but there are priorities, and we are to discriminate. 1 Corinthians 12, look at beginning verse 27 through 31. Let's read it all, and then we're going to jump around a little more. Now, you are Christ's body, and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church, this is at the end of this chapter where he's been speaking about spiritual gifts, and he says, God has appointed in the church First, first, apostles. And what is he? He's an apostle. What is Apollos not? <laughs> you know, first, apostles. All right? Second, prophets. Third, teachers. And then, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Now, you know that many of these are, are spoken gifts, Clearly, the apostolic calling was one that was spoken and written for many of them. Prophecy spoken, teaching spoken, miracles probably not spoken. Uh, then gifts of healings not spoken, helps uh, probably not a spoken gift. Administrations maybe spoken, but not primarily that. Various kinds of tongues, and that is a, a gift that involves speaking, right? But it's at the very end. 
All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers. And so he follows through this one, two, three pattern, you know. It begins with the apostles, second prophets, third teachers. All are not workers of miracles, are they? So that's number four. All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. Earnestly desire the greater gifts. What are the greater gifts? Well, the apostolic office is the greatest gift, right? And then prophecy, and then teaching. Earnestly desire the greater gifts, or there's a hierarchy in the gifts of the Spirit. Some are greater, some are lesser. And we are to know which are the greatest, and we are to seek those gifts the most earnestly. We are to seek them, earnestly desire. I mean, go after the greatest gifts. Now, again, this is a wild thing to think about. How do you go after a gift? Well, you know, in the same way, how do you go after salvation? But you do, right? How do you go after election? But you do go after salvation. How do you go after a gift? But you do desire it. How do you go after the, the eldership? But he who desires to be an elder desires a noble calling, seeks a noble thing. And so in, in one respect, none of these can be, they must be given by God. But in the other hand, in every one of them, God says, come after it. Go for it. Desire the most noble ones. Now, we must consider what are the greater gifts. And as we do so, let me say that we have become so practiced at cutting and pasting here at this portion of Corinthians that I just want to say, let's not cut and paste. There's... There's no cause, no call to cut and paste the word of God. There are, we're to sit under it and receive it. Listen to it. Let it speak to us. All right? And let's just practice that a little bit. Is that okay? It's an ironic truth that you can usually guess which gifts a Christian is going to embrace and which one he or she will think really are not active today, simply on the basis of their personality. You know, it's not always the case. It's true more often than many of us care to admit. Is the person intellectually driven? Is he or she a devotee of logic? Does the person dislike public displays of emotion? Well, they're going to be cessationists, right? They're going to deny the validity today of gifts such as tongues. They're going to value teaching, administration, and helps. They're not going to be so keen on tongues, prophecy, or healings. They're going to divide, they're going to have a line, and it's going to cut right through this passage. They're going to have problems with the apostolic calling, but I think we'll agree with them on that one, all right? Well, we can. I know that. Luther called Calvin, I mean, reverse, Calvin called Luther an apostle. Uh, but I think that was a manner of speaking, right? <laughs> I don't want to go there anyway, so we'll leave that one alone. But we're going to have problems with prophecy. Some of us are going to say, yeah, and others are going to say, oh, no, wait a second. Is the person emphatic? Are they emotional? Are they expressive? Then they will more likely be devoted to gifts such as tongues, prophecy, or healings. Now, most of us are Reformed, and the Reformed world values logic and order and dispassionate discourse, 
And so it's a rare Reformed church, though there are those that has anyone in it who practices the gift of tongues. On the other hand, the Reformed position on the sovereignty of God is rarely held in churches where tongues are common, right? So I warn you, and I warn myself, that when God first created man, he said within the councils of the Trinity, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. But ever since God said that about man, man has been saying about God, let us make God in our image and after our likeness. It is the chronic temptation of mankind to make a God that he can understand and predict. To recreate God after the fashion that we prefer. And the fashion that we prefer is almost always the thing that we're most comfortable with. And so we're constantly in danger of doing this. If we are essentially brains, disembodied intellects, we're going to fashion a God like us, who is a disembodied brain, who values intellect over emotion, a God of logic. The obvious, I think. It's nothing new, right? In the time of Christ, the rationalists of Israel, and I'd say the cessationists, were who? The Sadducees. Sadducees were the dry empiricists. They didn't believe in anything they couldn't explain, and as a result, they denied angels, they denied prophecy, and they denied the resurrection. We are in danger of denying the power of God if we believe that the intellect is superior to the Spirit of God. Now, you may think that the Spirit works in the mind, And that therefore, by saying a thing like this, we're in danger of denying the power of God if we believe intellect is superior to the Spirit of God. You may think by saying this, I'm drawing a false dichotomy by contrasting the Spirit to the mind. You may say, David, why why are you going there? You You can have them both. Yet this idea of the contrast between the Spirit and the mind was the stuff of countless early heresies in the history of the church. The whole Gnostic movement denied the indwelling of the Holy Spirit while emphasizing the power of knowledge of the mind. And so it had no new life, it had no regeneration, it had no miraculous second birth, it only had the transformation of the mind. Gnostic heresies emphasized the mind and de-emphasized the material and the bodily. So it's very possible to create a God after the image of our rational, ordered intellects, a God who is perfectly predictable and logical. So it's not a false dichotomy to speak of the intellect opposing the spirit in the lives of many. It's not necessary to have this happen, but many who overly value human intellect make this error. God is not bound by intellect. God is not bound. He does not have to follow the logic of man. In fact, Scripture routinely teaches us that God is pleased to make what seems logical, wise, and sophisticated of man into folly, and that he teaches folly, and he has made the cross the centerpiece of his folly, which is folly to man. Now, I want to think about why the cross is folly. Why is the cross folly? What about the cross is insanity to the eyes of the world? Certainly, it's not the very picture of the cross, because if you ever watch the Emmys or you watch the Academy Awards, there's plenty of crosses on plenty of ungodly people. So it's not the picture of the cross that's 
Nor is the idea of a suffering savior folly. I don't know a non-Christian who doesn't admire Jesus for going to his death for things he believed, right? So what is it about the cross that's folly? What is it? What is stupid about the cross? What makes the world go, meh? Well, uh, we'll come back to the question, I think, all right? God is not bound by the intellect. Neither is he present only where there's heightened emotion. So when we look at a list of gifts such as the one I'd like to have you turn to now in 1 Corinthians 14, would, would you turn there with me? We cannot go beyond the proportion of Scripture in our treatment of the text. We can't prefer certain gifts because we're more comfortable with them. We can't deny certain gifts and celebrate others arbitrarily in accord with what we're comfortable with. We may be more comfortable as we look at chapter 14. We may be more comfortable with the gift of faith. And with the gifts of teaching back in chapter 12, helps and administration, than with the healings and the tongues. But they're all there together. Moreover, the same word of God that tells us that there are not to be multiple worshipers praying in tongues in worship and that tongues should never be employed without interpretation also warns us that we should not forbid the praying in tongues. I know there are some among us who believe in what's called cessationism, the teaching that these sign gifts, miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased at the end of the apostolic era, including the gifts of miracles, tongues, and prophecy, at least prophecy as a word from God for a particular people. Yet it's hard to square this belief with Paul's often stated desire that all people of God prophesy. And it's ironic that it's the, the reformers themselves that taught us that the preaching of the word is prophecy. This whole area is rife with conflict and potential pitfalls, yet obedience to Scripture, real obedience, will help us navigate all these dangers. Having said this, we must think about how we value the gifts of the Holy Spirit versus how God values these gifts. And it's obvious truth that we tend to divide the gifts. How we divide them is, is perhaps not as obvious and consistent as we think, but we do tend to divide them. We view some as normal gifts, we view others as ex exceptional. Miracles, exceptional. Tongues, exceptional. Healings, exceptional. Gift of giving in Romans 12.8, normal. So to teaching, so to administration, so to encouragement, normal. But I want to come back to preaching and its connection with prophecy as we think about these distinctions. We're very frightened of calling preaching prophecy. We're really frightened of prophecy all told. So I want to ask you to think with me a bit about these distinctions that we have as so clear in our minds. Take the gift of giving or generosity. 
You've heard the story about the family that's down to its last dollar. They have no food in the pantry. They're, they're near destitution. And somehow in the morning, they find under their front door a check for $1,000. Now, what is this? Is this an ordinary gift or an extraordinary gift? Is it a miracle or not a miracle? Think for a moment about the great victories in Scripture. On the one hand, there is Jonathan and his armor bearer facing the Philistine horde. You know, remember the story? Let me read it to you. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. His armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be the sign to us. When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, behold, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us, and we will tell you something. (laughs) I've had that said to me years ago. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, who put some to death after him. That first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, was about 20 men within about half a furrow in an acre of land. And there was a trembling in the camp and in the field and among all the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earthquake, so that it became a great trembling. Now Saul's watchmen in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went here and there. Now, I, I, I know this is going to sound like a crazy question, but where's the miracle there? You know, what's the really remarkable thing? Where's the power of God? It's not strictly a miracle, at least the beginning of it, is it? It's brave beyond words. It's absolutely full of faith right? But it's not a miracle. No natural law is broken. That's the definition of a miracle. Or think of David with Goliath. Again, it's brave and full of faith, but there's no violation of the laws of nature. It's not a miracle when he takes that small stone. On the other hand, under Hezekiah, Jerusalem is besieged by the Assyrian king Sennacherib. Food is running out. Courage is gone, and in the night, God strikes the Assyrian camp. In the morning, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers are dead. That is a miracle. It's the direct hand of God. But which of these is the greater work of God? Which of them contains more heavenly power? The, The shaking of the earth that we'll take as miraculous that God did after Jonathan began the victory by just going up and saying, I'm going to fight them? Or Jonathan going up and fighting them? You understand the question I'm I'm posing here? Saying, where do we, how do we, we have these these rigid lines, and yet on examination, I'm not sure they, they hold up. I'm not sure we can consistently hold to them. I think this is true of preaching and prophecy. I hope this makes sense to you. 
A miracle is a, a suspension of the, of the laws of nature. God must intervene in human affairs in a way that contravenes the laws of nature. So a miraculous healing takes a leper and makes him whole simply by a word. It takes a blind man and speaks to him and he sees. And we're always hoping for miracles, right? And we always want the miraculous. We want the thing that has no human element in it. We want it to be a miracle. We tend to disdain the natural and to seek the supernatural from God as though a natural healing, a healing in a hospital in response to prayer, is less than a healing where the, the, the elders pray and anoint and right there it's done. But is that true? <laughs> Does it really matter how God chooses to heal? Is it less impressive if God uses a surgeon than if he tells you to go and wash in whatever the local creek is, like he told Naaman? The real glory, of course, is God working for our good. It's not that miracles are God working out of love and out of sovereign power, and that the natural works that accompany some things are just chopped liver, some things of God. It's not like David and Goliath is chopped liver, whereas Sennacherib is wonderful. No, God decrees the victory, whether it's by men or by angels. The healing, whether it's by doctors or by the prayer of the elders. God provides, whether it comes down like manna from heaven or by a job that he gives to someone who prays for a job. And so we have to be careful not to establish or draw a line in a hierarchy of gifts that says that only literal miracles are evidence of God's power and love, or that only these literal miracles are things that we've got to turn away from and that we have to go to the natural. Either line is arbitrary. Either line denies the, 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 the equal sovereignty of God and will of God on both sides of the spectrum. So what is the greatest of God's gifts to men through the Spirit? Well, there's no denying. If we're to seek the greatest gifts, there's one that stands out. At the end of chapter 12, the Holy Spirit says, earnestly desire the greater gifts. Then Paul says, and I'll show you a more excellent way. And, he, and there's this sort of interlude of 1 Corinthians 13 with its emphasis on love. Let me point out that 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the places where cessationists turn for evidence that miraculous gifts stop after the apostolic period. If you've read Charity and Its Fruits by Jonathan Edwards, you know it's a profound argument against the continuation of miraculous gifts. And it's really a beautiful book. And you listen to it, you read it, and you come away saying, well, maybe I'm a cessationist. But in verse 8 of chapter 13, when Paul writes, love never fails, but if prophecy, they will be done away, if tongues, they will cease knowledge. And this is the verse, of course, that's used as a cessationist argument, right? If tongues, they will cease, if knowledge, it will be done away, for we know in part, we prophesy in part, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And many people will apply that to the, continue, the, the, the formation of the canon. And they'll say, now that we have the perfect word of God, these these gifts that are miraculous fall away because we have the perfect now. But of course, included in that list of things that fall away is prophecy, and the Reformers, and even us today, have, have continued to maintain the tradition that prophecy lives on in the preaching of the Word, and that would mean that preaching would fall away once you have the Word. 
And there are some churches which have fallen into that belief. And yet the emphasis on the glory of prophecy is so strong in chapter 14 that even those who claim to be cessationists actually admit that prophecy continues only that now prophecy is simply preaching. Prophecy is clearly the prince of spiritual gifts outside of of the apostolic office. It stands apart and above the rest. It's above tongues. Verses 2 of chapter 14 and 3 and 4 make this clear. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in the tongue edifies himself. But one who prophesies edifies the whole church. All right, it's clear. The, others, uh, the other gifts are lesser, including tongues, which is a spoken gift, because it doesn't edify. And so prophecy is superior not just to tongues, but it's also said to be superior to teaching. And here is where, uh, you, you may be wondering where I'm going. Now, this is where I'm ending up. Prophecy is superior to teaching, but we have reduced prophecy to teaching, haven't we? I don't think that you could find the average Reformed person who would admit that the Reformation teaching was that prophecy continues through the preaching of the word and have them give an adequate, satisfactory defense of the difference between prophecy and teaching. And yet the word of God clearly says the one is superior to the other. Prophecy is superior to preaching. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not miracle workers, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. There is a superior gift, and this gift should be sought by all. Then in chapter 14, Paul begins the chapter by urging that we desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. And at the end of that chapter, verse 39, he ends the discussion by saying, Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. Desire to prophesy, and don't forbid those people who speak in tongues. But of course, it's the one stands light years ahead of the other. This statement really demonstrates the comparative worth of these gifts. Don't forbid tongues, but desire earnestly to prophesy. Nor is this the only passage that speaks of prophecy as the great work of the Holy Spirit. Back in the Old Testament, the prophet Joel foretold the coming of the Holy Spirit on all God's people with this promise. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will teach. (laughs) No will prophesy. And here, brothers, is perhaps one of the reasons why we're so frightened of prophecy and yet why we should not be so frightened. There is a distinction between prophecy and teaching. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in in those days. This may strike you as dangerous and scary ground, but it's not. It's tremendously profitable. All of us are called to prophesy. 
young and old, men and women. Now, you may have visions in your head of what this may look like. You may want to say, but preaching, preaching, it's the only prophecy that exists today. And preaching, I say to you, is most powerful and glorious when it rises to the level of prophecy. But unfortunately, most preaching is just teaching. Most preaching does not rise to the level of prophecy. Perhaps part of our unease with this statement of Scripture, that your sons and daughters will prophesy, and the the prophecy is greater than teaching, resides in the fact that when we hear the word prophecy, we think of Moses on the mountain receiving the word from God. We think of Elijah on top of Mount Carmel calling down fire from heaven. We think of Daniel in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. We think of these things. Prophecy, of course, is far more than these things. In fact, these things are, relatively speaking, a very minor portion of the work of a prophet. Now, interestingly, these sort of miraculous, ecstatic things that are done in, on these occasions I've spoken of are sometimes what we see women even in the New Testament with the four virgin daughters of Stephen. Not Stephen. Philip. Um, the four virgin daughters of Philip uh, who are prophetesses. These are the kinds of things we find them doing. Not in the assembly not violating the very word that establishes that, women, that this is a gift for today, not going against the word of God, but actually they do prophesy. But you know that the, the prophecy of the prophets in the Old Testament went far beyond these, these miraculous occasions. In fact, they're just a relatively minor portion of the work of a prophet. Yes, the prophets in the Old Testament did on occasion stand and ecstatically declare the word of God. When I say ecstatically, I mean directly by the Holy Spirit speaking through them. That did happen at times. At times there was a direct direct revelation by God to the prophet about what the dream meant or about what his word was for the situation. The fire, the word became fire in them. They spoke for God. But when the Spirit was most upon them, Even when they were most influenced directly by God in what they said and revealed, the prophet was in control of himself. Look at verses 31 and 32 of chapter 14. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted and the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. Isn't that interesting? The spirits of the prophets are subject. In other words, the prophets never did anything where they were so operated on by the Holy Spirit that they weren't in control of what they did. In other words, they had to cooperate. They had to walk in step with the Spirit. They had to not put out the Spirit's fire. It was essential that they themselves work with the Spirit to prophesy. The idea of a prophet caught up in the Spirit Uttering things that he can't control is unbiblical. It's nonsense and a corruption of the truth. Prophecy was never a man out of control, a man simply as the voice, the megaphone of God. Though this kind of weird, miraculous phenomena is the world's idea of a prophet, it has little to do with Scripture. Desiring to prophesy is not seeking to speak ecstatically or miraculously. There were times when they did speak ecstatically and miraculously. They were still in control of themselves. 
There were times when they would foretell the future, such as Isaiah speaking hundreds of years, hundreds of years before Cyrus, saying, my servant Cyrus is going to come, set my people free. But it's rare even for, for Isaiah. Read through the book of Isaiah and see how much of it is actually the foretelling of things. Not much. It's a small percentage. And Isaiah is, in fact, rare as a prophet. Isaiah has more visions than the average prophet. In fact, what we read in Scripture is, is, is throughout the history of Israel, there were bands of prophets. We read in Samuel of bands of prophets existing in Ramah and at Bethel, and that Samuel would make his, his yearly uh, course to visit the bands of prophets, what we have also called the schools of the prophets in the Old Testament. There appear also to have been bands of prophets in Gilgal, and in Jericho. We see in 2 Kings 2, when Elijah is about to go to heaven, that a band of 50 prophets met Elijah and Elisha there on the day that God took Elijah to heaven. You know, that's hundreds of years subsequent. It's way after Samuel. And so throughout the history, there are these schools, these bands of prophets. So the evidence is, is clear in Scripture. Prophets lived together. They were trained in prophecy together. They spurred each other on. Samuel and Elijah, two of Israel's greatest of prophets, appear to have been leaders of such bands. This is why we call them schools. Important to realize that prophecy, like other spiritual gifts, can be learned. The spirit of the prophet can be worked up. Actually, the scripture teaches us that prophets would play music so that the spirit would come upon them. They used music to spur on prophecy. What do prophets do today? They do precisely what they did in the Old Testament. Now remember, prophets were more than teachers. You may think that the prophets of the Old Testament were the teachers of the people, but they weren't. Who were the teachers of Israel? What? The the scribes in the New Testament, they wouldn't have been called that. They've been the Levites in the Old Testament, all right? But you're, you're on the right path. The teachers of Israel were not the prophets, they were the Levites. Deuteronomy 33 of Levi, he said, let your, your thummim and your urim belong to your godly man whom you proved at Massa, with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and his mother, I don't consider them, did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach your ordinances to Jacob and your law to Israel. These were the, the people whose, whose ministry was teaching and sacraments. They shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings on your altar. The Levites were the teachers. They were given the responsibility of teaching the law. And so in Nehemiah, when there's the reading of the law, the Levites are appointed, the Levitical priests are appointed to teach people what it means because they're, they've fallen out of, of knowledge of what the law means. And so the Levites are the teachers Ezra reads the law from a wooden platform, and below the people of Israel stand, and there are 13 men, we're told, from the tribe of Levi, who explain the law to the people who are gathered below. So the prophet is not simply a teacher, either in the Old Testament or in the New. The prophet stands above the teacher, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Yet prophecy is done by those who teach and by those who preach today, but Prophecy stands above teaching, just as the prophet stands above the Levite. Just as the prophet is second and the teacher is third in Paul's ordering of things in 1 Corinthians 12. 
Remember, Jesus calls himself the teacher. He sends his disciples and he tells them to call for the use of the upper room. And he, and he says to them, when they ask who wants, it says, the teacher sent us. And then during the upper room, uh, the events of the upper room, after he's washed their feet, he says to them, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So Jesus is referred to as a teacher and he calls himself the teacher. But he also says to the, to the people, Watch out for the Pharisees. They sit in Moses' seat. So do what they say, but don't do what they do. He emphasizes their teaching, and they have a legitimate teaching office, but it's corrupt because of their practice. And Jesus is known not as teacher, priest, and king, but as prophet, priest, and king. And at the time that the people want to, the priests and the high, the, the high priests and the, the, the leaders of the Jewish people want to put Jesus to death, they hold back because they understand that the people regard Jesus as a prophet. Now, the people understand it. Now, these are the teachers, but they're afraid of the prophet. You know, and Herod thought that John the Baptist was a prophet. And the people held that John the Baptist was a prophet. And Jesus goes to them and says, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. If you tell me this, by what did John the Baptist do his things? And the, people won't, the, the priests and the Pharisees won't answer because they know that the people held John to be a, a prophet. So what is the distinction between a prophet and teaching? And I've, I've already said it's not the miraculous, is it? Most of what a prophet did was not ecstatic, was not foretelling the future. I don't know if we've taught our, our, our men in the pastor's college the kinds of things that we learned in seminary. How many of you have learned that a prof, the two things that a prophet does when he's prophesying? That old saying that, that we learned at Gordon Conwell, maybe heard before that. But a prophet, he does two things. They both... Yeah, foretells and foretells. How many of you have heard that? Okay, most of you. Foretells, and that's sort of the, the wowser thing, you know, Cyrus, 400 years beforehand, Cyrus. You know, or, well, let me tell you the meaning of your dream, and let me tell you what the dream was, even before I tell you its meaning. Foretells, but that's the, the miraculous. The vast majority of the prophet's work, which is superior to the work of teachers, is the simple work of forth-telling God's word. Now, how is it that a prophet is distinct from a teacher? What is the essential difference? What's the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees? He taught as one having authority, didn't he? What does authority mean when you're teaching? It's not just stamping your foot and saying, (laughs) I'm sure the Pharisees were pretty good at stamping their feet and shouting. They taught as one having authority. Authority is always over others. Authority is the ability to command. And what we find is that Jesus is like the prophets in that he not only teaches but he commands. And he says, this is what I'm teaching, 
and I'm saying it to you. He never teaches as a sort of vacuous intellectual exercise, but it's always a teaching that then is honed to a fine point and driven like a spike into the minds and the hearts of the people who are listening. He's always going for the heart. He's always seeking to apply the truth of God. This is what the prophet does. Any Levite can say to David, it is wrong to commit adultery. It is wrong to commit murder. But it takes a prophet to go to David and tell him the story about the poor man with his little lamb that he loved and then to get David all upset and finally to say to David, as David says, that man, he's going to pay multiple times for what he's done. To say, no, you're the man. That's a prophet. It's when the prophet rises in glory. He says, you're the man. You're the man. You're the man. This is what Paul does. I mean, we see it in his, in his writing. And if his writing is any revelation, if it's, he did it in person. Think of him door to door with tears. Door to door, as he says to the, the Ephesian elders at Miletus, I went door to door with tears. He is applying. The word of God. He is not just standing in the pulpit and declaring. He's applying, 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 applying the word of God to the people. He knows them. And he applies the word of God to them. He isn't a fancy pants preacher who is known for his eloquent oratory. He's a simple preacher of the truth. Remember Jesus. Everyone said, wow, it's simple. It's nothing eloquent. But it had authority. This is a beauty if you've, read, uh, if you've read The Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. How many of you have read The Bondage of the Will? A few of you. You know, who, this is, a dial, this is a, an apology, sort of a, an argument against Erasmus, who was the Enlightenment mind. You know, Erasmus, they still wear T-shirts with his picture on it and his name on it at IU. I mean, people at IU love Erasmus. He's a liberal hero. It's one of those guys who wanted to be part of the church and to go halfway in reforming it. You know, he'd be a critic, but then he'd come back into the fold. And he'd be a critic, and then he'd come back into the fold. And then you have Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, if you've read the book, what, what does he do to Erasmus? He eviscerates him, man. He, he, his, his entrails are hanging out there in Luther's hands. and saying, look at this. And Erasmus, I, I often think, what would I feel like if I were Erasmus? I think I'd want to dig a hole, and crawl in it and die. <laughs> and it's so simple. It's so beautiful. It, it's, it's the power of God. And it is logic, it's everything else, but it is simple, and it's the kind of thing that normal people could understand. Think of the beauty of, of William Tyndale. And his conviction, as he said to the visiting guy from the Roman Catholic Church who was telling him not to, to, to teach in English and not to translate the Bible and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the plowboy understand the word of God better than the priest. This is the Reformation. This is Paul. It's prophecy. It's taking the word and setting it free to act. It's believing that the word of God actually speaks to people. And it is not what is practiced in the evangelical and reformed world today. It is not. We think that the highest a man rises is to be eloquent, 
and to have his sermons printed as a book. I remember a dear friend whose wife said to me how hard it was for her husband to preach. What a challenge it was for him to preach. Because you know, David, she said, every sermon that he preaches has to be a chapter in a book. And I go, oh, what a tragedy. He's writing books rather than prophesying. He doesn't have people in view. Theoretically, yeah, but he's never looking at Wayne and saying, yeah, I know this about you. How often when you preach, do people in that congregation know that you're talking to them? You know? Or is that something that we studiously avoid? We don't want anyone ever to think that we're actually talking to them. We're talking in theory. You know? And we're doing so very eloquently. Do we really believe in the gift of prophecy? Do we really believe in it? Do we really believe that it's the prince of gifts? Do we really believe that the preaching done right at its heights, at its highest, is prophecy? Let me... Uh, Let me close two things by saying that the folly of the cross is that it applies to people. It's not the concept. It's not the fact. It's the application of it. You can talk about the cross until you're blue in the face and people will say, how wonderful, until you say something to them about their need to die with Christ, to be crucified with Christ. And then suddenly, wah, this this is folly. All right, that's, but what is the test of a prophet? Well, I want to read to you a little bit here. What is the test of a prophet? How do you know if you're prophesying? In the years after Calvin, there was a back and forth between the, between the Roman Catholic Church and its forces, the towns that were allied with it. Savoy was one of the chief of them, and Geneva and Bern, which were the two Protestant centers, and there was wars or battles at various points, and conflict and the Catholic Church was constantly trying to get back in. There was a truce at one point, the truce of of 1594 between Geneva and Savoy, between Calvin's Protestant Geneva and Savoy, which was the Catholic beachhead in the area, brought little security or stability to the countryside parishes. In fact, during the next decade, rural pastors faced even greater dangers from the twin threats of bandits and wolves, Savoyard soldiers, and now Catholic missionaries as well. With the conclusion of the war, Jesuit priests and monks under the leadership of St. Francis de Sales began an all-out effort to evangelize the provinces of Thanon and Tenier, reformed strongholds in Savoy on the southern shore of Lake Le Mans adjacent to Geneva. Sporadically at first and then with increasing success, the Catholic mission won converts by pursuing public debates, distributing tracts, conducting processions and 40-hour vigils. In the summer of 1596, three Capuchin friars reestablished the Mass in Ternier on the south of Geneva. On Christmas Day of that same year, Francois de Sales ignored Protestant opposition and celebrated the Mass in the parish church of Thonon, first such service in 60 years. The venerable company, that is Calvin's company of preachers, bitterly protested what it viewed as violations of the Treaty of Lausanne 
and appealed to Byrne for advice and support. But at the same time, Geneva's ministers resolutely refused to engage the Catholic missionaries in theological debate, fearing it would lend legitimacy to the Savoyan efforts to convert the rural population. In the end, the Catholic campaign to evangelize Thanon and Ternier, backed by political pressure and threats from the Duke of Savoy, was a stunning success. By December of 1598, several thousand people had renounced the Protestant religion and embraced the Catholic faith. Almost overnight, the Reformed religion had been swept from the southern shores of Lac Le Mans. Beza was horrified by what he described as a great apostasy. He likened the situation to the Jews' betrayal of Jesus in Jerusalem during Holy Week. Countryside parishes under the direct administration of the Geneva Church also experienced intense Catholic pressure during these years. The pastors in the parishes of Midnaydens, Bosse, and, and Chauncey Villaray between the Rhone and Arve rivers to the south of Geneva were repeatedly threatened by soldiers and confronted by officials of Savoy who demanded that they stop preaching. In the summer of 1598, Savoyard troops kidnapped the ministers of both Chauncey and Bosse and held them as hostages for ransom. In August, a representative of the Duke of Savoy, accompanied by a Catholic priest, arrived in the village of Valeri, three miles south of Chauncey, ordered the presidents to restore the altar and the Catholic adornments to the parish church. The villagers reportedly refused, answering that their bodies and possessions belonged to their prince, the Duke, but their souls belonged to God. A very different outcome occurred in the village of Valeri, located at the foot of the Salave, only five miles south of Geneva, where the villagers expelled their pastor and returned to the Catholic Church. In July of that year, a Savoyard captain with 40 soldiers and a priest unexpectedly arrived at the Temple of Van Durve, forced open the doors, celebrated the Mass. The next Sunday morning, the two priests, accompanied by the three soldiers, had returned to the church. This time, however, the parish minister, Hugo Roy, Members of his congregation stood up to them and refused them entrance. Geneva's magistrates instructed Roy hereafter to have an armed bodyguard ready to protect him whenever he preached in the parish church. And I go on and it talks about them being killed, the Protestant pastors. When they come after you with swords, <laughs> well, then you know you're prophesying. When people hate you, then you become a prophet. You know, does anyone hate you? Well then, praise God, you are a prophet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will, you will make us prophets rather than teachers, that we will apply your word. That we will not merely be teachers who stand apart from the practice, but that we will always end by emphasizing the authority and calling people to submit. May we preach the cross of Christ by calling people to bear that cross, to be crucified with Christ, rather than simply teaching it as a, a great ethical truth. Keep us from being intellects only, but may we have the power of the Spirit in our preaching. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Grab a hymnal if you've got one close to you. There weren't enough to go around for every single person, so you might have to share with a neighbor. Turn to page 80. We're going to sing How Firm a Foundation, and I noticed as I was flipping through here that this does not have the tune that I am familiar with and most of us know and love. It has instead, O Come All Ye Faithful, as the tune, which we're not going to sing. We're going to sing the tune I know. 
And let's just agree to sing the words here in the book, okay? There's, there's, there's discrepancies with this. This is, this is notorious for having discrepancies, even between us in this congregation. We know different versions of the song slightly. Let's, we're going to sing these words, okay? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled? Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed. I, I am thy God, and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not thee overflow. For I will be with thee thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. In through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. E'en down to old age all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And when hoary hairs shall thy temples adorn, like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Amen. Just a couple quick announcements. Um, we're going to get started back here at 8.30 in the morning. There'll be a continental breakfast, and then our first session will begin at 9 a.m. Um, we are meeting at Max Carell's house um, after we leave here, and so if, as you exit the parking lot out to the road, make a left, and then it's the first driveway on the left. It's a red house. Um, however, your windshields are covered with ice, <laughs> so it might take some work, um, and if you don't have something to chisel that, I at least do, and others will, I'm sure. So you might want to let your cars run a little bit, and let's try to take our conversation over there rather than hang out here too long, okay? Let's close in prayer as we depart. Father, we do 
Thank you for meeting with us this evening, and we thank you for your word preached boldly to us. Father, we do pray that you would give us courage to stand and to proclaim your word and as truth and not to, to shy away from it. Father, we know that if we do this, persecution will come, and we pray that you would make us faithful in doing it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.